Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. Anne Enright is the first laureate of Irish fiction. She has published 11 novels, many short stories, and a nonfiction work called Making Babies, Stumbling into Motherhood, about the birth of her two children. Her essays on literary themes have appeared in the London Review of Books and the New York Review of Books, and she writes for the books page of the Irish Times and The Guardian. Her fiction explores themes such as family, love, identity, and motherhood. Anne won the 2007 Man Booker Prize for her fourth novel, The Gathering. Her second novel, What Do You Like?, was shortlifted for the novel category of the 2000 Whitbread Awards. Her 2012 novel, The Forgotten Waltz, won the Andre Carnegie Medal for Fiction. Her novel, The Green Road, was shortlisted for the Women's Prize and won the Irish Novel of the Year. Her latest, The Wren, The Wren, is coming into the world later in September by Norton. It has been named the most anticipated book of the year by the Millions and Literary Hub. Anne and I will talk about poetry, how it may have been a natural place to turn during the pandemic, and how it can be used to structure a novel. We'll talk about shifting points of view, finding characters' voice, her revision process, so much more. Before I bring her on, another reminder to visit our Patreon page. We are offering special tips and perks up there. Hopefully the show has boosted your writing in some way and given you some useful advice. If so, look for us there. There's going to be another exciting thing coming down the pike very soon. So check us out there. You can find us by visiting patreon.com slash writers on writing. We also invite you to leave a review of the show on Apple, Amazon, Stitcher, however, wherever you consume your podcasts. That helps us out by bringing new listeners to the show. Enough with the housekeeping. On with the show. Anne Enright, welcome. Hi, Mary. So I heard an interview you gave once when you said that you and and actually maybe even each of your siblings were gifted the tool of your ultimate trade on your 21st birthdays and you received a typewriter. And before we dive into the novel, I was just wondering, was writing something that was kind of expected of you all the way along, or at least you felt you had your family's blessing or, or sort of tell me your path into it? Yeah, I suppose I was uh, quite a bookish child and I read early and often I had my nose stuck in a book. But I, yeah, where did these ambitions come from? Or is it I, I, I sometimes say that writing was an arranged marriage for me, that people thought I should write and I agreed with them. And actually, it's it's gone quite well as arranged marriages some, sometimes can go well enough. Um, so I, I suppose I, I, I was sensitive as a child <laughs> i don't know it's, it was funny there were five siblings and the kind of idea that i as the youngest i could have the luxury of pursuing an artistic career whereas the rest of them had to you know knuckle down and go into the professions and 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 be you know straight straight-minded and all the rest of it and so i was this kind of wilder object at the end of the line um um, and writing was the natural fit for me. But now, uh, you know, as I, I, I head into my 60s, and my mother is incredibly elderly now, and she, uh, in her later years, was saying that she always wanted to write 
So I wonder whether I'm just kind of taking her ambition and fulfilling it despite myself. Yeah, I was going to wonder if there were other writers in your family, frustrated um, writers, perhaps. Well, you know, back in the day when women, you know, gave up their jobs when they got married in Ireland. And uh, I mean, this is a long time ago. It's really hard to know what can start or stop somebody off on writing a series of books, isn't it? Because yeah. you kind of think, well, you know, women of that generation, once the children were reared, they had plenty of time to sit down and write a book, but they didn't have the kind of wherewithal. They, they didn't have the, well, the networking that's available now online and all the rest didn't exist at all. But there was a, a confidence gap as well. How are they going to, they didn't know how to do it. So you get this fresh generation coming along and you think, well, maybe they'll know how to do it. So it's kind of interesting to the, to be in a situation where you think you're part, it's, it's part of a generational ambition. So you're not, and I think this goes for the characters in my books as well, but that, you know, the novel is supposed to be about individual, the individual becoming yourself is uh, one of the great ambitions of the novel. But my characters are part of communities and networks and, and, and generations and families. So they're not entirely themselves. I'm not really a total individualist in that way. They're kind of connected to other people's wants and uh, difficulties as well as their own. Yeah, it's funny as you're talking about your own family, and I'm seeing some of these reverberations in the novel itself, and the uh, the mystery sure. of the male artist, you know, and power. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. Um, the idea that men would have the confidence to go and do it, or that that that, but in order to be an artist, uh, the the grandfather in the book, Phil, is a poet, and he lives a rambunctious kind of slightly chaotic poet's life. He lives the life of an artist and he's not, you know, he can't be pinned down domestically. He can't, you know, he, he has to do what he has to do because he's, he's an artist, God damn it, you know. So <laughs> that wasn't available to women, more or less, in those years, I don't think. No. I mean, the question is whether you need to be like that in order to write. And I think the answer is no, you don't. I mean, we see plenty of people who are domestically very settled, who produce fantastic books. Yeah, there was always this romantic mystere about, you know, the alcoholic writer or the sure. womanizing writer for men, sure. <laughs> not, not so much for women, but for men. Yeah, yeah. I mean, somebody was asking me about, you know, is he a, a narcissistic, artistic, male, nar narcissistic writer? And my, my theory about all of that is that, you know, narcissism, which is a new enough word, but narcissism expands to to fill the available space. And we gave these men the space. Nobody, we you know, uh, we, we wanted that. Something in society wanted that. The wild artist, the drunk artist, the, the artist as genius. These were all figures that were socially sanctioned and admired. And even if we look at some of the monstrous men now in the public eye and we say, Somebody wants that that monstrousness. Somebody is rewarding that. Whereas so romantic, they, yes, yeah. It's or it's powerful, or it's interesting, or it kind of goes into some part of your psyche that's wild and very atavistic or something. Uh huh. Primal, primal, primal. Yes, yes. Well, we should step back, and I'll let you kind of properly introduce the book. It's not even out yet, at least in the States, and so I know nobody has picked it up yet. So I'm going to give you a chance to lay the foundation for Nell and 
Carmel and Phil. We've introduced yeah, I, Phil I, I, a little bit. But. We did, yeah. I have a cultural difficulty about this because American writers, when you hear them, they always know what their books are about and they're able to tell you in very precise, nice sort of synopsis. Um, and I, I, I always make you do that because I'd have absolutely no idea how to describe it. It is. It's hard to... Uh, okay, first of all, I don't know what it's about yet because I just... It's not out. I haven't done all my patter. I haven't talked about it for two years. But the other thing is that my books are hard to describe in a single kind of few handy sentences so there's, yes, yes there are three discourses I mean, there are three characters I won't say discourse there are three characters there's Phil who's a poet and his poems are in the book there is his daughter Carmel and her life is in the book and then Carmel had a daughter called Nell and Nell is the kind of modern day young uh, online She's a kind of wonderful young person. I really kind of like Carmel. But mm. she's in first person. She's in a very kind of fragmented, very modernist sort of way of writing, Nell. And she has a bad relationship problem Yeah, at the beginning of the book. Okay, it's not a very good description. There are these three people. The book is not over plotted, to put it mildly. It's not over determined. You just see, you, you just see an amount of each life and they and the connections rise to the surface of your reading mind, I hope, and give some kinds of a kind of pleasure. You see the connections. They're not, but it's not like A causes B. It's, it's kind of more poetic than that, actually. You know, I was thinking as I was reading this of Jose Saramago's Blindness, which is one of the first books I read way back in the day that didn't use punctuation marks. And okay. it gave you this feeling of being blind because you didn't know who was speaking. You didn't know where they were coming from. You you actually kind of couldn't see, which is what the book was about. Oh, that's so interesting. It was so experiential. And I had that same, I mean, it's totally different the way you executed this, but I had that same feeling reading this book that it's it's not so much a story as an experience that the reader is having alongside the characters. And the way you executed that through poetry and blank pages, yes, yeah. lots of white space, made you feel like this was almost happening to you rather than you were reading it. Does that make sense? Or is that was that what you were going for? Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I was going for anything as... <laughs> <laughs> Yes, <laughs> but uh, and there is punctuation in the book. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yes. just be, yeah. But I, it, when you talked about Saramago there, I thought immediately of our Molly Molly Bloom at the end of Ulysses, and that's also unpunctuated. Um, and in her soliloquy, you get this kind of libidinous rush of of words. You don't know what's going to happen next because because the punctuation isn't there. Yeah. Um. Um. And again, that is fully experiential. I mean, it undoes something about how you control your reading and you're in it. And it's kind of amazing. So that would be fabulous if I were able to do such a thing. But Nell's pieces are written in 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 fragments, the way a lot of modern young fiction is written, actually. Um, she has a certain kind of rhythm, a certain cadence. And, and so it, it is quite fragmented. Carmel is a different generation and her prose is very steady, very literal minded. I find Carmel really hard to write because Carmel is incredibly pragmatic. She's a very tough person. The difficulty in the book is that Phil left them to be a poet. He left when their mother was sick. 
uh, Aleph Carmel and her sister. And so that's the, the rupture in the book. That's the that's the wound. That's the trauma that 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 goes through the generations afterwards. Carmel, it, the people say, oh, Carmel, you have no imagination. So whatever lockdown happened to Carmel at the age of 12 or with this father was very, very tough minded. She's very tough minded. And it's funny the way Phil talks about that leaving as though it was just inevitable. My wife was sick. I, I forget how he phrased it, but, you know. You know, you know that, that came from a real experience I had. Very nice, seemingly very nice writer. And we were judging a prize a million years ago. And he was talking about, um, you know, he had a phone call he had to pick up about picking up his daughter or dropping off his daughter. He had to custody arrangements. And then he explained afterwards, he said, no, well, we split up. You know, my wife got sick and, and, and we split up. And I was I was saying like, oh, dear, oh, that sounds tough. And afterwards, I thought that man left his wife when she was sick. Yeah. What? Yes. Right. <laughs> what? OK. <laughs> and I thought maybe he meant she was mentally ill and kicked me out, you know, or what? But she got sick, you know, and we split up. So that I mean, that how can you get rid of that? That was in my head for decades. And that is literally what Phil says. And it's the kind of thing that men might have said. Um. Uh, I was kind of, a, but I have a lot of sympathy for, for Phil, believe it or not, because his wife, il, his wife illness, his wife's illness isn't a kind of, it, it isn't a kind of selfishness in him. He's kind of anguished by it. He can't cope. He mm. can't cope with her being sick. Mm -hmm. And that is a conversation I've had with a lot of female friends who have male partners and they talk well, I talk about how odd men can be if you've got something wrong with you. Like, yes, yes, it's like that they can be, you know, the nicest uh, man in the world. But 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 if you're not well, it goes into a funny place in their heads sometimes. Yes. yes. Yeah, I think the word he used was unfortunately, 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 the marriage as though it was him. not his. Yes, as though it was not his. Volition. Well, what can what can you do? I mean, it's like he didn't sign up for that. I mean, you can also see it for sure. Uh, certainly, in families where a, a child has a disability or something, that a man will disappear because why would he? How could he stay? You know, it just becomes it's not what he wanted. It he did. It's not what he wanted in life, and he and he doesn't feel connected enough to 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 put to to sit through it and of of course that's not all men but it is a million times more common from men than it would be from from the mother in such a situation so how do you respond to difficulty well and it goes so much against that you know romantic wild untethered artist sure i mean know, some sincere. some men some men do it when when the children are small they're going what Yes. Yes. I don't want to tie down. Yes. <laughs> this, 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 who, 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 why did no one tell me it was going to be this hard, you know? <laughs> right. So there's a section in the middle that is from Phil's point of view, I think also first person. And I almost thought that you could almost make that a standalone piece, you know, that almost read like a short story. And uh, and you talk about your sympathy for Phil, and we really get that, obviously, in that section from his point of view. At what point, I was wondering, did you write that? Because you had to understand him pretty early on, pretty thoroughly, but that section comes later in the book. And so I was wondering how much character work you did with him 
before setting yeah. out to to write the book? Um, I, I always timeline fairly early on. You know, I mean, Phil was born in 1936. I think I know that. So I, I worked very hard, not on his character as much as on his formation as a poet. So I was looking at his influences within the Irish lyric tradition. He's 15 years older than uh, Heaney and Michael Longley. So he came before that amazing flowering of poets in Northern Ireland in the 1970s. So I was really working on him in literary terms because the poems are a wonderful challenge. His character, however, who he was, how he would be in company, how he felt about himself, to himself, all of these were known to me without a whisper of difficulty. <laughs> I mean, I had full access to the character of Phil. I didn't need to work on his character, put it that way. Okay. Um, I had to I had to work on his formation as a poet, that's all. Or or that's where the work was going on consciously. Perhaps all the unconscious work was going on elsewhere. And so I wrote that piece which feels I mean I it feels a little more old fashioned than perhaps it it should do. But there is a kind of Ireland that that is familiar to readers, which is a very non-specific rural past, and you couldn't quite say if it's the seventies or the fifties or the thirties, you know. So he he belongs right there, um, in the centre of all that. Let's talk about trying to write his poetry. I don't know how much poetry you write. <laughs> I, I really <laughs> don't. The, the writing the poetry was hilarious because. I, uh, for the first time in my writing life, I had imposter syndrome. Like I write all kinds of things. I've written loads of books. I never feel imposter syndrome. I know people describe it and I think, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> there I was pretending to be a poet. And I was frightened of the kind of sacred, what, what that, the sacred freight of, of poetry. It felt like a kind of thing that you that that you had to be born to do rather than that you it wasn't just putting lines on a page that were short, certainly. Yeah. yeah. And I, as a prose writer, I'm completely pragmatic. I say well, if people say, I wish I could be a writer, I say, Well, you know, start typing and then you are a writer. So it's, to me, it's not a I don't I, I don't kind of uh, make it mysterious, put it that way. Um mm. But poetry still felt mysterious to me. So at some stage, so at some stage, I uh, reached out to a couple of poets and said, is this a poem? As if they would be able to tell me rather than me knowing myself. <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, it looks like a poem to me. Maybe not so many commas or something. Or <laughs> bring down the line of it. Like, oh, my God, it's a poem. So that was great. It was great fun to do. I worked on them. I mean, I work on all my lines. I'm not unfamiliar with working a line, yeah. but this really refined. It was a very long, slow process uh, to get those poems. And then by the end, I could write one. Yes. Could... Now you're a poet. Yes. Great. Yeah. Great. I'm not a poet. <laughs> I Phil is the poet. See, I haven't said this thing about sincerity, okay? Because it, it, to be a poet, and again, this isn't true. It's just how I feel. It's that you must be somehow sincere. It must come not from the heart, but from something very essentially true-minded, you know. Yeah. And I much, I much, I prefer to play, and I prefer. I mean, I, I'm apart from anything else, suspicious of sincerity. I think 
some very sincere people are pretty wretched actually in their actions. So sincerity doesn't really, <laughs> right? It doesn't really do it for me. Nor, nor do I care if people are insincere sometimes if they're if they're doing things properly. I don't, yeah. I don't care. About, yeah. Anyway, so sincerity overrated in my book, um, and I feel that I would have to have a bit more of it to be a poet. Well, it's interesting that the poetry came out of because I I was reading that this book was very much pandemic born. Yeah. Uh, and I found myself reading a lot of poetry during the pandemic one, because everything felt so upside down, especially here mm-hmm. in the States with all of the, all of the nonsense that's happening here. And poetry just felt like more true or something or more yeah. getting back to basics or more. I don't know what it felt sure. like, but but there was more of that, more inclination to read that during the pandemic than I had felt maybe any other time in my life. Yeah. And I wondered about that for you, if if the poetry and the pandemic were somehow balled up together. Absolutely. You know, I mean, that spring, April of March and April of 2020, and I was going on my daily walk, you know, my sanity walk, which was up a local uh, Kalini Hill, which is a local park near me, and, and and the spring was happening, and the ferns were pushing out of the leaf mold under the oak trees and everything. And I was like, I was I was almost rendered ecstatic by it. I mean, I was just uh, my attention was super focused on 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 the natural world. It made the only sense that that it was the it was the only sensible thing I could look at. Um, the market had disappeared. The readership had disappeared. I had a book out. My last book, Actress, was uh, it was in February 2020. Yeah. And I, I had and the book tour in the States was I had to leave in the middle of it. It was just astonishing. So I was that was, a I think, a, a real trauma. So I was trying to figure things out. And poetry was the only thing that made sense. And the natural world made a lot of sense. And those two things are very intimately connected, especially in the Irish lyric tradition, where, you know, there's medieval work in, in Irish about birds, about, you know, it's about trees, uh, about the weather. Um, this is what people were were looking at and making poetry about from the earliest times. So, yes, it was a total return to basics for me. Meanwhile, I was writing Carmel and Carmel was was also post rupture, post trauma. And she was and, and her toughness, which I found extremely challenging, actually. But it was also part of that time that you just get on with it and you don't ha- imagine anything. <laughs> yes. So Carmel not having imagine. I mean, when you start imagining things, it gets out of hand very, very quickly in those days. So you don't imagine things. You just you shut that door in your head, and then and then the poetry makes made a lot of sense. So it was between those two poles, between those two polarities, was where the book was moving. Uh, I also heard you say at one point that boredom, and I think this, I heard you say this when you were on tour for actress so it was like the center of the pandemic and you were talking about how boredom brings all your demons out because you know you have so much time to sit sit and ruminate and i could feel that in this book as well that this was all demons for these you women. think <laughs> i don't know maybe a I little mean, I, I, I you know nobody accuses me of writing too many angels you know <laughs> right, right. Although there is an amount of interest in the angelic and the sublime 
in the book. Uh, yeah, yes. From Nell, who's, who doesn't have a religious tradition, but she's very interested in the high things that are high and sublime, as an awe and these these I think necessary emotions. And she's quite interested in all of that. But yeah, no, I have a I have a tragic news. Um, my books are not filled with sentiment, but I hope. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they are hopeful, you know, that they're genuinely hopeful. I mean, uh, uh, because they are, uh, when I'm writing them, I really feel that yearn to to move my characters onwards, to to sort them, to settle them, to grow, to, to let them grow. So, yeah, so much truth in there, like gut punch truth in there. Yeah, the, other, the last thing that I wanted to say about the poetry is it felt like, and we kind of alluded to this at the beginning of our talk about the structure of the book structured around poetry, but it almost felt like the book was kind of teaching you how to read it. And the poetry set a structure and set sort of a shape of the novel. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about structuring this. It, it okay. as, as we've said, we go back in different points of view between Nell and Carmel yep. and one Phil, but a lot of poetry woven throughout Talk a little bit about whether the the poetry provided some of the structure for you or not. Well, I think the simplest thing to say about how I structure this book and a number of other books, The Gathering is is similar um, in that there is one kind of story is juxtaposed, is just set beside another one. Um, and then the po- the poems in this case are just set beside the chapters I do it because it feels right, and I can't explain it better than that. Uh, it feels right to have this, first of all, to have Phil in his own voice and to have these punctuation points between the chapters where meaning just sits very quietly there on the page and where you think, well, okay, he's very far from a perfect man, but this is what he was writing. So there they are. So there's something incontrovertible incontrovertible about the poems that I liked and they carry the emotion of the book in a way that I was happy with. I am sure there are some readers who like to hear through a book and see what's happening next and they will just go what the ah, poems yeah (laughs) (laughs) and they'll skip okay so this is not a book for skippers you know you just have to let them happen see see how that affects the next chapter these Slight echoes and connections. I'm not. I'm not selling this very well. <laughs> okay, it works like a poem because you put one thing after another thing that aren't necessarily connected automatically, and the poem then is interesting. So right. that's where the interest of the, the dynamism of the poem comes from, is the unexpected juxtapositions between uh, the, the feeling that it can go somewhere new. Well, and you have to be an active participant. This isn't, like I said, it's, it's a very experiential sure. novel. It's not one of those sure. that's going to the airport read that, you know, you're right. Yeah, I'm, I have nothing against the airport read, um, but I, I like the reader. I mean, a passive reader. I don't know really quite what a passive reader is. I have a great respect for the reader. Sometimes you kind of feel that the writer doesn't, you know, that they're giving, they're obliging the reader to sit into the book and be there the whole time and uh, and get it all i'm not explaining that very well but <laughs> yes no i don't you mean yes right you know right. like yeah uh, you know you have to submit in some way to a book i mean say cormac mccarthy 
uh, reading Cormac McCarthy to me is quite a masochistic experience because one bad thing happens after the next. I mean, it's just <laughs> awful, awful. And you cannot get out of this book. You have to sit there. You have to read all of it. Um, and, and that feels quite that that's the reader as masochist for me. Yeah. Um, you suffer the book and you enjoy suffering the book. Oh, my God. Yeah. Sometimes, unless you don't. I mean, some readers won't. Whereas with with uh, by contrast with these, I want the reader to be moving with me or against me or um, with the text or against, you know, to have opinions and to fill in. Certainly, actually, this is now I remember what I want to say about the reader. I like the reader to fill in the gaps in their own way. Yeah, maybe that's what I mean by it's an experiential novel, because you don't assume, and some writers do assume not amount of stupidity on the reader's part, but they don't give the reader enough credit. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah, I think and, so. And uh, you give the reader a lot of credit and Good. give them a lot of space to um, have their own reactions and experiences. Yes. You know, I mean, I used to say early on, I like a book that makes me stop reading and look up at the wall. Or out the window. Yes. Some books are grabbing you. You can't you can't tear yourself away from them. Some books set you dreaming, set you thinking, set you, you know, put, you know, they ring sort of distant bells in your head. You make connections to yourself. Those those books I like. Well, and you put that into the book by all these blank pages in there. If the reader isn't staring at a wall, you give them a wall. Yeah, I, yeah I suppose. There are actually a few less blank pages in the, you may have had a proof, co proof copy. So I think I took out some of the the blankness. It's oh, still okay. there. Yeah. Okay. okay. Did you yeah, like? I love. I love the. I love the. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I was like, here's the time to pause and reflect back. I love yeah. that. The other thing, the last note that I wanted to make on the poetry is that you embedded some of that repetition into the prose itself. So even if we weren't reading the poems themselves, we got the experience of poetry through a lot of word repetition, just in the prose. And yeah. that pulling through, I thought, was was really masterfully done. Thank you. We'll be back with more from Anne Enright talking about the Wren, the Wren in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Another quick reminder to check out our Patreon page if you are enjoying these behind the scenes discussions of how these books get made. You're learning anything that is inching you closer to your own publication path, this is your chance to support the show. Any amount helps us out. Visit patreon.com slash writers on writing. Let's get back to it with Anne Enright talking about the Wren, the Wren. So who amongst these, so it sounds like it was Carmen, which I wouldn't have anticipated, who was the troublemaker character for you in terms of accessing her mental state is that yeah accurate? yeah so phil is a poet and he's a certain vintage and he's a certain kind of man and nell who is this young tearaway um uh, who just who does whatever she wants somehow and makes her own mistakes and blunders around nell almost breaks into poetry from from time to time you can feel the poetry coming out of what she's putting down on the page Whereas Carmel is kind of anti-poetic and she's really, you know, <laughs> she is getting on with things. She's putting the bread on the table. She's making her, making, she has her daughter kind of as a, almost as a surprise to herself. 
She loves her daughters. Absolutely. She's just really going to control everything she can and make everything as, you know, uh, as as good for her as possible. So, yeah. So Carmel was the difficult one. I, I, I have been asked, how did you get, you know, Nell is young. How did you get a young voice? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, we were all young once. <laughs> it's like, it's like, why should you get? Why should it be harder to get a young voice than an old voice? I'm not old yet. And for for Nell's voice, I went back to my own early work. I've been writing since I was in my early twenties. So that, so I went back to my own early work to see there's a lot of that kind of tendency to fragment that kind of interest in 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 modernism in in, in my early short stories and in some of the the short stories I'm still writing notably uh, the few the last ones that were in the New Yorker have this kind of modernist impulse so Nell was so easy mm. I love Nell she just has this and she just had a tone of voice and I I, I could but Carmel Carmel I, I had a Right, really straight, I, and and so I had to, I she was she, I had to confine her, her thinking at every point, and and write plainly, hmm. um, and make it all structured and safe, because right. that's that's she's the way so she on was. guard. Yeah, she's yeah, on. yeah. I think you make the point in the author's note that there are Marthas and Marys. And uh, I know little about the Bible, but I do know barely that much. But <laughs> and that they they kind of bounce between the generations of women. Yeah, like... I used to think that, but actually, if you look at some siblings, some of them are kind of very responsible, and some of them are very irresponsible. But you know, if you if you, if you, if your parents were wild, you know that careful child. I mean, you do know that careful child with yeah. wild parents. Yes. Yeah. So there's this ribbon of masochism and misogyny, and not even a ribbon. It's it's a pretty <laughs> it's a pretty thick rope. Yeah, for Nell and a lot of those scenes in another writer's hand, and I get the sense that this isn't that difficult for you. So so maybe this is just a natural thing. But you know, I think sex scenes, misogynistic scenes, you know, bordering on abusive. Yeah, yeah. S and M scenes are hard for writers, and you know, when have you gone too far? Yeah, and I was wondering if you could give any insights into approaching hard scenes. I again, I get the sense it's not that hard for you, but I don't actually. I felt quite emptied out that 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 first section of Nell's uh, first section, where she she enters into a kind of obsessive relationship with a guy called Phelan, and she's really taken by the by the arbitrariness of his contact. I mean, he'll call or he won't call, and it's all on his timetable. She becomes completely um, besotted by him. And it's almost, uh, I'm very wary of the word, a word like complicit, but it's almost like she creates, she's a co-creator of this uh, extremely, what, what, what ends up in being just a very abusive relationship. Um, so, but, but sporadic, you know, so it's not, it's not going to be the, the rest of her life. And I was, and I, I, it was quite a reach for me, I do have to say, and I did feel really quite emptied out by those scenes. I found them, I won't say difficult, I found them emotionally quite strenuous, actually. Mm. Um, apart from, I, I, you know, I was what I was looking at is that murky ground that isn't actually BDSM or kink or, you know, that kind of more or less cheerful <laughs> theatrical <laughs> version right. of, of these 
difficulties of dominance and submission uh, or, or interest in dominance and submission. One of the reasons that I took this subject on, which isn't my natural go-to subject, to be honest with you, um, but was because I'm reading a lot of younger women who are writing these kinds of relationships. Um, and, you know, feminists of my generation are saying, what, what went wrong? You know, we, we, we went out into the world and thought that, you know, sexual liberation, you might even say in, in Ireland, which was more or less recent uh, in Ireland, was the best thing ever. So how, how, how did it all go wrong now? Why, why, why sometimes this kind of stated interest in submission and masochism? It's also very strong in the French tradition. A lot of French women write about that. Mm. Mm. Um, and I wonder how much of it comes from, in shorthand, comes from the patriarchy. <laughs> it's like, mm. yeah. Um, yeah. so how how much of it is inherent and how much of it is socialized? Um, and and in, in Nell's case, uh, in certainly in Phelan's case, he's very on. He has an online problem. What we we would get from hints in the in the text. Yeah. So how much of it is to do with the pornocracy? How much of it, you know, uh, and how there, there was it, so there is, you know, it, politically, ideologically, for me, there's a genuine concern of how do young people find their way through a, a much more extreme environment sexually than even you know, the repressed Catholic Ireland, which was extreme in a very different way. Yeah. So this is a this is a really big negotiation for people to make. How will they make loving connections in yeah. in this kind of landscape? So yeah. So and they do, which is the wonderful thing. They do. Yeah. I mean it goes as right as as much as it goes wrong, but it can go briefly wrong. So I was kind of interested in 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 it going wrong there for now what all that means. Right. I mean, it was hard to sometimes know. And that, that goes back to sort of the experiential part of this, of when she yeah. was on board and when she wasn't on board and it for her to even a, know herself, right? Yeah, it was a bit of a binary, actually. Uh, sometimes it was absolutely, felt absolutely right and thrilling. And sometimes it was just awful. Yeah. So it was like, how does the, how does that, in nail, how does that, switch get flicked yeah i want to reassure the readers that it doesn't last for long no it doesn't last forever no and it's really it's it's so interesting those passages are so compelling well <laughs> and it actually raises another interesting point that i i've heard you say you're not a moralist but the novel is a moral form yes. and that was in relation to i think to another well, maybe to your bigger body of work, but before this was written. And I was thinking about that as I was reading this book, because that really comes to play. I mean, there's certainly no judgment on the author's part about any of these characters, even the most dreadful of these characters, you uh, think? like Philem. Yeah, well, he has, he, you have a little, if you're alert to them, you'll see insights into their character where, where in Phelan's case, where he, does, he, he, he doesn't know what he's doing either. Yeah. Yeah. He's a product. I mean, they're all products of whatever yeah. they're products of, right? Sure. So. Phelan has a family. There's three boys in the family. And it, one of the brothers is, is you know, he's the psycho, is the brother. <laughs> and yes. one of the brothers is a kind of a really ni nice guy. Um, 
Cahill, but then there's a middle brother who's who 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 is in a different kind of book. I mean, my characters aren't pathological. My family situations are not pathological because patho- pathology is stuck. And and then I don't know. And the novel is absolutely interested in change. You can't have narrative without change. I am really personally interested in growth. And so you so so the characters need to grow out of their problems one way or the other. And that is one of the big challenges of, of a book. So I don't have pathological characters. Yeah, uh, they're not stuck. They're I hope they're developing. They are multifactorial. Put it that way. Can you say more, though, about this idea that you're not a moralist, but the novel is a moral form and, and yeah. working in that? When, I, when people quote me back at myself, I often wonder, why did I say that? Why did I, and there must have been a context. But you can say for sure, okay, the novel is a social form and society is a, is, has a moral dynamic or is connect, has moral connections. So you're, you're, sure. you're, yeah. So it's not a, it may be about balance rather than judgment. It yeah. may be about the truths that I like to arrive at are contradictions. Right. If I right. find a good contradiction, and I'm happy, I can't right, say. But you're not you're not setting out to make any sort of statement on these characters' behalf. But as they go through their path to change, the yeah. reader can come to conclusions about sort of the the moral structure of of sure. I mean, their decisions. It, it, that's really ancient. You you want the the reader to go no. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, you really. That's what that's the word you're looking at from the reader for from the reader. Please no. Don't do this. Um, right. And I mean and Carmel's tragedy which is to me the m- most um you know really you know Carmel loves Nell more than the world but she you know she's not she says of herself that she's not a good mother and we're going to judge her uh, whether we're going to judge her quite fiercely I think there's some taboos broken there. Uh, in her relationship with Nell, and yeah. that was p- extremely sad. <laughs> I'm yeah. really selling this book. It's really sad. <laughs> <laughs> Who likes a happy novel? I was all in. Good, good. Tell that to Shakespeare. I will. That, I that will. Hamlet. Everyone yes. dies. What's your yes. problem? Right. Look how well that's still selling. The other thing I wanted to talk about was getting in and getting out of novels because I loved, and we won't give away the ending. I love the ending. The ending kind of reminded me of Cormac McCarthy's The Road. I don't know why it just did, just ending on this image of nature, but I don't want to, I don't want to okay. too much give away the ending. Actually, the book is interested in the poet's problem is this, where does language take you and when do you leave language behind? So there is a kind of farewell to language at the end of the book. Was that known to you all the way along where you were trying to get to what you were writing toward? No, I mean, I think it is part of the theme of the book, which is what I, I don't know how to describe it properly, but poets know what this is about. It's like, what is what is language doing? What is a description? What is it? What is it doing? Where is it bringing you? Mm-hmm. And so this sounds a little too esoteric and abstract, but no, I didn't know. No, I didn't know. But it was it, right. I felt it felt yeah. right at the end. Yeah, I mean, it feels like such a hell of an ambitious novel. And did it feel that way to you in writing it, that it was more ambitious? Or do all novels just feel ambitious and this was ambitious in a different way? And what do you mean by ambitious? Hard. Really hard. 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 Um, well, 
Maybe they're all hard, but you know, well, poetry just in its essence would feel. Like oh yeah, no, that was ambitious. Hard. I mean, to, yeah. to, to write the poetry, that was, that was really, yeah, that was cheeky. So, <laughs> yeah, yes, <laughs> and mischievous. So that's another word, um, and perhaps overreaching a little bit. I mean, that poetry had to work as poetry. I think it does. It works well enough. I wanted it. It had to stand, um, and but the rest of it. I've written a lot of books now, Mary, and I am interested in rightness, just like what feels right. So I don't, I, and in a way, it was less ambitious than other books because I wasn't trying to strenuously bring it together in some way. And that's mm. that's what ambition feels like, doesn't it? I have to get it, you know, to, to do this. You know, that's my ambition. Mm. I was much more gentle. Um, in my writing approach, which was I just didn't want it to be overdetermined. I wanted these people to be, um, and I didn't want to force them into any kind of big, big conclusion. I wanted them to come through, I mean, gently to come through. Yeah, we should mention, and I don't think we did mention that back in the day you were an actress, and actually your last book was was the actress um, oh, it was the actress yeah well that was more ambitious in plot terms or in story terms the story was bigger there was more glamour involved and all the rest of it but once i the, the difficulty with actress was that if you're talking about somebody who is acting and supposed to be famous i had things that were nearly real in actress but the the film she was in was called mulligan's war it was a bit like six films you could mention but when i realized i could make Phil's work happen on the page rather than refer to it as oh he's a famous poet and we're all supposed to believe that then that revolutionized this next this the ren the ren um mm. because it could be real it, it could be real it could be there the work yeah yeah they say that uh, and i think even you had quoted somebody saying that every novel is trying to solve some problem of the novel before it so maybe that's how the ren the ren was addressing the actress do you think? totally totally yeah they're all in conversation one way or the other right. and they and then they happen as twins really or not as their siblings they happen in groups there are connections between the books yeah for sure yeah. and then you know i think i'm writing something completely new and different and oh this would be this is an adventure and i haven't been here before and then two years in I go oh no I'm writing this again it's like <laughs> I can't believe I'm doing the same thing as I did in one or the other you know there was no father figure and Nell doesn't have a father you know an official father figure Carmel has her uh, uh, deliberately on her own so it's another dyad of mother and daughter without a, a father in that priest in that general you know without there is of course the grandfather there is a big man there but uh, there's no father as such well, I have to ask you about being a laureate in Ireland. I have oh, such yeah. a mystere about, you know, the Irish literary tradition. And <laughs> I think it's so, I don't know, romantic or something. But tell me a little bit about that experience. You've talked, and I'm interested in this idea of you being sort of a, you, you've talked about yourself as a statelessness writer, that, you know, you're not trying to steep every novel. Well, I mean, they're they're set in Ireland, but it's not yep. forefront at the you know sure. we're, we're not uh, bludgeoned by Ireland in, in, in yeah. novels so I don't even know what my question is here I'm just interested in your Irishness well, yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the literary tradition well you know when I was in my 20s and 30s I was really keen to get away from Ireland Ireland was not an easy place for women to be in I suppose and 
And the idea that you had to be lovely was very onerous to me. <laughs> that was that was the problem that Irish feminism faced was that if you weren't lovely, you were mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so and there were all kinds of constrictions. There was no contraception when I grew up. There was no divorce until the 90s. Abortion was made legal only in the last 10 years in Ireland. So reproductive reproductive politics were extreme and well, they were kind of locked down. They weren't even there. And also there was a kind of uncalled, uh, unconscious bias against female writers, for sure, in Ireland, that you had to be one or other thing. Um, whereas the men, the, the, it was like everyone was so busy being Irish that gender wasn't properly considered. Anyway, it was a very male tradition. Um, all of these things, and it was all of these things I found constricting, and 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 I really wanted to stick my elbows out. And I was my books were selling better elsewhere in my in the early days than they were in Ireland. Um, and and that was twenty years ago. And now, I mean, I was laureate in two thousand and fifteen, but now I'm almost as romantic as you are about the Irish tradition. Hmm. <laughs> you know, it's I don't know, it's it's something like realizing something about your family, like how lucky you are. I mean, if you some some sometimes you're not lucky in your family, but you know all these people who annoyed you all these years, and you think, no, actually that was okay, that was okay, and certainly the Irish tradition was kind of glorious, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it is it kind is. of glorious. Yes. It's yes. like, why yes. did I complain? Why was I complaining about all of that when it's such a resource? But uh, I think it's also important to be in conversation, I mean, really active conversation against some of the platitudes and sentimentalities that surround a tradition. And uh, and to really, you know, you're looking to say something again and again, you're looking for something that's newly truthful, that is not. There's always something new to say against a tradition as well as within it. So now it strikes me as all the more amazing that you were the first laureate. Ever, yes, as a woman. Yes, that was kind of it was a, a a signal honor, and I think it was in part it made up for my my a feeling that I'd had for a long time of of more or less not being part of something. I felt slightly excluded from the tradition. I mean, I won the Booker Prize and everything. It's a sort of odd enough response in Ireland at the time. So that felt like a bit of a homecoming, actually. So to ha- to 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 be named laureate. Do you feel gender blind and nation blind when you read? Does it matter to you? But I I used to read extensively outside of Ireland deliberately, but uh, you know you're involved in the book business and and the Irish tradition is incredibly fresh and vital and flourishing. So you're looking at younger people's work all the time. And it tends to be I, I it tends to be more Irish than not. So I love American writers. I, I just read Joanne Beard for the first time. I, mm. uh, I hadn't come across her. She's just an amazing essayist. Um, and uh, I, I, I read in my 20s and 30s extensively in the American tradition and extensively from American female writers. Um, they just had a freedom and a confidence that was fabulous. To, it was fresh air. I have to tell you a, a weird coincidence. This morning I saw that Tessa Hadley was on 
the New Yorker Radio Hour. I think she's now published more in the New Yorker than anybody else. So then completely unrelated, I was looking you up in our archives and you came up as a, a um, admirer of Tessa Hadley. And I was like, those two things happening at the same time on the same morning were just total okay. So I don't know if, I mean, there's a great British tradition, obviously, too, amongst writers. So she, she there is a great, I mean, Tessa Hadley's work is really judicious and wise and beautifully uh, shaped. And, you know, she's a wonderful writer, a wonderful short, short form writer as well. Um, when I say American tradition, I can kind of feel that you don't know maybe what, what that is. Would you, would you say, yes, there is a tradition? Yes. Sigrid Nunez and Laurie Moore are in the same family. Would you think of that? Is that the way you think? No. <laughs> no, you see, you don't. And I do. I say, yeah. okay. And yeah. I mean, I guess when you're standing in the forest, you can't see the trees that are around you. I think but that's right. Yeah. Whereas there is, you know, perhaps because of political shifts in Britain, I don't know if you'd have to ask really, but I'm seeing. I wonder why English writers in particular don't really say, I am in the English tradition, um, but they don't. And Americans really wouldn't want to say that, probably. <laughs> no, but so Ireland is, you know, kind of pretty, pretty much of an outlier there because we have a tradition. We're all different. We're all completely different. If you think of any given Irish writer, the test for me is if you read one paragraph of any of those names that you can conjure in your head in the list of Irish writers, they are incredibly different to the next one on the list. Well, it's so true. So it's like right. they're yeah. individual voices. True. They have the yeah. kind of same accent, but totally, completely individual in their voice. Lyrical. And maybe what I think of as lyrical isn't as lyrical as it would be to you, you know? That's a really interesting problem. Are there things, advice that we should give writers that we didn't mention or advice that sustains you or things you're thinking about that we didn't cover? I've got, yeah, I just wrote for LitHub about writer's block about how I didn't believe in it, Good. which is basically, you know, you, you, you imagine it. It's something you've imagined. So you might as well imagine your book instead. You've just made it up. I don't know what advice I have to give to writers. Uh, uh, you know, actually for young writers, I mean, I've been in the game now for 40 years or more. And what I see is that talent is very important, but tenacity is the thing that gets you through. Yeah, I've seen so many talented writers who give up and so many kind of mediocre, tenacious people who do okay. Oh, my God. That's absolutely the case yeah well this was a pleasure i love the book and it'll be out later in september and i'm going to press it into everyone's hands and uh great congratulations thank you so much lovely to talk to you that was ann enright the book is the wren the wren it's out and available this september published by norton in addition to our Patreon page, you can always visit our websites. Barbara's is penonfire.com. Mine is mariestone.com, two R's and Marie. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can find all of our past episodes up on our website, writersonwriting.com. As always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at Travis Barrett. 
That's all the time we've got for today. Tune in next week. Thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.